1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. By this love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Good morning. So given our theme for 2019, we love because he first loved us, we've been looking at uh, numerous, as a church, numerous aspects and, and applications of love over the past several months. We've, we've asked uh, in, our, in our sermons, in our Bible classes, in our uh, small groups, and in other capacities, uh, what, what it looks like to be uh, a people, a church, individual Christians characterized by love, whether that's in our home, in our community, in our church relationships, um, what, whatever it is. Uh, what would it look like for us to have the kind of love with, with which God loves us. And, and we, we must do that. We don't really have a choice because to, to love like God loves is to know God and to be accepted by God. Look what it says back up in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. I mean, isn't, you know, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, isn't knowing God one way of saying what it's all about? We come into a relationship with God. We know Him. We're intimately involved with God. Uh, we are His people. He is our God. He, we dwell with Him. He dwells with us. We're taking on His attributes. We are acting in the world as He would act. We are feeling and, and, and thinking as the way He would feel and think. We know God. Well, it says here, if we don't love like He loved us, we don't know God. He doesn't have footnotes that say, unless you come to church every time the doors are open, then you're fine. Or unless you've been baptized for remission of sins, then you're fine. You add the list. He says here, if we don't love, we don't know God. So this really isn't something, I think this is an understatement, we should see as, as optional. There's everything at stake. Not just a lot at stake. The whole ball of wax is at stake. And so should, we should, we, we should want to be aware of anything that would maybe keep us from loving like we should. Anything that... Um, does so is, is keeping us from becoming like our God and being accepted by our God. And we ought to be passionate about discovering uh, any, anything like that. We should be ruthless about removing that thing from our lives. It ought to be priority one. Well, what is that thing? It, it, it turns out that that thing is identified right here in this text. And that thing is fear. Four times in verse 18, he uses this word. And he presents it as the nemesis of love. There is no fear in love. The kind of love he's talking about that ought to characterize us. The kind of love with which God loved us. It sent Jesus to the cross. It just doesn't have fear in it. Fear and love don't dwell together. 
Perfect love, complete love, matured love, casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, and that's the whole point of the gospel. We don't have to worry about that now. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. We, 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 we can never really be a people who are characterized by, by love if fear goes unchecked. Right? If we just let fear do its thing, and that's, it is what it is, then we, we're never going to be people characterized by love. Love casts out fear. And if, if fear is allowed, uh, if we allow it to be normalized in our life, that's just our normal state. We're just going to live with that. Work around it. Have a bunch of patches and workarounds because, you know, fear's normal. Well, then we don't have love. Not fully. Not the way God wants it. And sometimes I would argue we even nurture fear weirdly. It, it's, a, it's sort of a comfort with, with, with fear that uh, ought to be eradicated. So today what we're going to do is begin a series of lessons, a short series, probably three lessons or so, examining fear and how we might, in fact, uh, eradicate it or allow God to remove it from our lives, from our hearts, from our heads, from everything, from our church. Next week, uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, um, we're going to do a special service that is uh, thematic, rela thematically related to uh, what we're talking about in Exodus that Nick is putting together. Some of you might be called upon to participate in that, but so we won't, we won't continue this next week, but the week after, Lord willing. Fear. All right. Um, first of all, let's talk about this. We, we, we need to see this as a matter of knowing our enemy. After, as we've said, there's one thing in particular. You know, the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the writer John, could have listed anything in this great paragraph on love and how central it is to our identity, our, our MO, um, our, our trajectory that we're on eternally, what we're doing in the world, what our relationship with the Almighty is. It's about love. He could have listed any number of things as, as the arch enemy of love, and the one that he mentions is fear. Several times. And when you think about this, it really fits what the Bible says. We talked about this on Wednesday night. David made a comment, and, and I did to this effect, and I think two or three people kind of uh, weighed in on this. But the commandment, fear not, or do not be afraid, uh, in, in various versions, it depends on the English version you're using, it'll be translated different ways, but something to the effect of don't be afraid, don't be fearful, fear not, is among, if not the most, frequently occurring commandment in the Bible. I haven't countered them, so I, I'm, I'm hesitant to go, yes, it, it is. But I've read several uh, people who study this sort of thing who have said that, and I, they're pretty trustworthy folks. One of those is the writer N.T. Wright, who in a little book on discipleship called Following Jesus says this. He says, do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible turns out to be? Is it be good, be holy for I am holy, or negatively, don't sin, don't be immoral. Of course the Bible teaches those things. But are those the most frequently occurring commands in the Bible? No, they're not. The most frequent command in the Bible is don't be afraid. The irony of this surprising command is that though it's what uh, it's what all really want to hear. I mean, we want to hear that. You don't need to be afraid. We have as much difficulty, if not more, in obeying this command as in any other. We all cherish fear so closely that we find we can't shed it even when we're told to do so. And then he says this, I think rather ominously. Let's make no mistake about it. Until you learn to live without fear, you will not find it easy to follow Jesus. So discipleship 
moving forward and follow, being Christ followers, more and more fully taking on His image and His purpose in the world and, and, and being defined in our inner heart, uh, you know, having an identity and a security that comes out of what God has done in Christ for us, all of that is inextricably related to your ability to follow Jesus. And I'll tell you, if you're visiting here today, that's what we're trying to do as a church, just be Christ followers, to be people who take His Word and, and, and try to live by it. We're not perfect. We don't uh, claim that, that everything we do is exactly right, but we do believe it's exactly right, and we're, you know, we're trying to open up the book over and over, even if it's a topic we're familiar with and we studied five years ago. We keep on doing it. Why? Because maybe we were wrong. Maybe we need to tweak something. Maybe we had a blind spot that time. And so we're, we're aspiring to do that. And if you're here and you want to talk with us about that or something in your life that you think could be uh, made better by Jesus, then we, we'd happy, be happy to talk to you, you know, later. Uh, we could set up a time, study, whatever. That's, that's what we're trying to be. So we want to be Christ followers. Shouldn't we care a lot about fear? It's the number one enemy. Public enemy number one of Christians is fear. And for centuries, those who've had to deal with adversaries of any sort have, have really kind of extolled the virtues of, of knowing one's opponent. Right? There's a lot of football watched yesterday and played yesterday. Um, and how many hours were spent in the week prior, maybe some cases in the summer months, studying the film of opponents? What are their tendencies? Uh, what do they tend to do in this situation? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? We need to know our opponent. What kind of trickeration do they pull? You know, they're going to have these multiple formations to like get our little eighteen-year-olds, you know, student athletes' mess, heads messed up, and they're going to they're going to you know uh, do fakes and this. All, and there's all sorts of stuff. Football coaches do that. Uh, marketing departments and corporations that are competing with other corporations do that. Uh, people before they get, uh, get ready for a political debate, they're studying the opponent. Uh, military strategists study their enemy. Uh, millennia ago, uh, a guy named Sun Tzu, who wrote a famous book called The Art of War, said famously, if you know your enemies and know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. And we need to know our enemy. Our enemy is fear. That's what keeps us from the love of God, from perfect love without which we do not know Him. 1 John presents this in pretty stark terms. It doesn't present like a middle ground. Um, one of the problems with this, one of the challenges, is that many of us, I, I would hazard this guess anyway, many of us probably don't think we have a problem with fear. We would admit we're not perfect. On paper, people love to admit that. When you, start, you get to concrete, then they, they don't so quickly. Oh, I know I'm not perfect. But, you know, then, then sort of act like... A lot of times the reason we don't see that we, we all have fear, we all deal with fear, is because fear comes disguised as something else. It manifests as many different things. That's the problem. It's still a form of fear, a form of anxiety, a, a worry that things might not be just right, that I might not fully thrive here or be safe or get what I think I need or get satisfaction. And if you feel great about that, then I suppose you don't have any fear at all. But if there's any angst at all, if you're expending any effort to to sort of uh, forestall such a, a, a situation in your life, to prevent it or to remedy it once it's there, then you've got some, some fear. We're, we're defining it that broadly, and I think the Bible would as well. 
Um, so I, I, wouldn't, I would encourage us not to let ourselves off the hook too, too easily here. I mean, it's like an opposing offense's multiple formations and trick plays. Or uh, the, the opposing general on the battlefield, he's going to have smoke screens and decoy movements, and he's going to feign a, a flat movement and do something else over here. I mean, that's, you know, that's, those examples are uh, or a dime a dozen. Fear comes in many guises in the same way, but we all have it. Otherwise, why is fear listed as the anti-love force? Why is it fear that makes the cut in 1 John 4? You ever thought about that? Do you think he's writing only for like 10% of Christians? Isn't 1 John in the canon because it's for all of us? If in a context, in a biblical letter, a, a part of the canon, a part of the, 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 the collection of books that are God's, you know, His holy authority, he says, here's what I want you to be. I'm ultimately, essentially, love. I want you to ultimately, essentially be love. Here's what you've got to look out for, fear. Do you think that only applies to three or four of us? Probably universal, wouldn't you say, if it makes that cut? And so we've all got it. It is the thing that love is trying to drive out of our lives, of our church, of your families, of your relationships. David Benner, in a little book called Surrender to Love, writes this. I found this little book very helpful. Fear has many faces, all of which mask its essential nature. See if you see yourself in any of these phrases. Some people fear intimacy. While others fear solitude. Some fear loss of control. While others fear a loss of image. Some fear the strength of their feelings. While others fear the loss of some comfortable feeling. Some fear attention. While others fear neglect. Fearful people are more alike than the differences between the foci of their fear might suggest. Fear takes on its own life. Fearful people may appear quite cautious and conservative, or they may narrow the horizons of their life by avoidance and compulsion. They also tend to be highly vigilant, ever guarding against life's moving out of the bounds within which they feel most comfortable. Because of this, fear breeds control. People who live in fear feel compelled to remain in control. Life beyond control is unimaginable, even though their efforts at control have only very limited success. Anybody relate to that? It never works anyway. God's in control. We talked about Moses this morning and Pharaoh and the oppression, and God had to do that or it wasn't going to get done. And yet we have this, this continual pipe dream, this continual, continual fiction in our head that we can somehow control things to not let our worst fears materialize. We're never in control. The real answer is to have fear eradicated from our lives. And so we got to talk about how to do that. All right, here, here's one challenge, though. The Bible says a lot of things about fear, and it is not, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't speak with one voice about fear. It's not a simple monolithic, what does the Bible say about fear? Like, like a lot of things in the Bible, the Bible says a lot of things about a lot of topics. And there's a lot of things held in tension, and you've got to look at nuance and context. It's not a list of, you know, 7,000 disembodied, context-free propositions or laws. It just didn't come to us that way. So you've got you to think about this. And, and, and namely what I'm talking about here in distinguishing good fear from bad fear, somebody might be thinking right now, well, you can say we shouldn't have fear, love should drive out fear, but what about all those biblical passages that commend fear as something we should have? Right? So uh, there's a commonly used uh, a word in the Bible that's translated fear, but it also often carries the idea in context of respect. 
of reverence. And maybe you were thinking about that when we went, went through this first point. For instance, Deuteronomy 10, 12. God says to Israel, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Like, fundamentally, what's God looking for in His people? This is what uh, this is, uh, Moses is saying here. It is to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So they're inextricably you know, mixed in with like loving God with your whole being, which you know, the great commandments of Jesus cite. Uh, when he's asked, what, are the great, what is the great commandment? This is, this is number one. Love God with your whole being. Serve Him and so on. But fearing the Lord is part of that. Walking in His ways is part of that. Proverbs 1.7 says, and several other places in Proverbs, and this is repeated in the book of Psalms as well, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You get knowledge and wisdom by fearing the Lord. This isn't talking about being horrified by God, right? Walking around like, oh my, He's going to nuke me at any moment. A ray, a bolt is going to come out of heaven and I'm going to be vaporized. If that's your continual existence, that's not at all the picture we see in the Bible. But still we're told, told to fear or respect God. And, and yet it is true that sometimes this respect for God, this reverence for who He is, this appreciation for the gravity of a being like an almighty God, sometimes that legitimately can take the form and should take the form of being afraid. Uh, sometimes, and the reason is pretty simple. My whole existence, your, your very life, is ultimately in the hands of God. Your eternal destiny. It's a matter of eternal life and death, what God thinks of you and what God does with you. He's the one, as Hebrews puts it, to whom we must give account. No creature is hidden from his sight, Hebrews 4.13, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, or him with whom we have to do, one of the older versions says. Everybody ultimately has to face God and is accountable to God. And he is almighty. That's kind of frightening. If you're on the wrong side of God, right? That's about as frightening as it could get. If you're on his bad side somehow. If he doesn't approve of you. So one of the things the Bible teaches us about fear isn't just a never have any fear of any kind. It's, it's more like this. You need to fear the right thing. That's the problem. We have misplaced fears too often. And in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's God. It's very appropriate. It may not be fashionable anymore. I, mean, I personally think it's becoming less and less fashionable, even fashionable, even in evangelical Christianity, to talk about the justice of God, the holiness of God, the expectations of God, what righteousness looks like, and how non-negotiable that is to God. We don't like that part of God's character as much as His, His love and mercy and compassion. And you, you really can't understand the other without one without the other. God's grace and compassion and incredible mercy, which we have sang and praised God for this morning a whole lot, and amen to that, only is appreciated and only stands out when it's backlit by the holiness and judgment and, and terror of being eternally without God. When we appreciate the gravity of sin and how dark that is, then we can really see how light uh, and, and wonderful and beautiful the gospel is. So they go together. He can destroy our whole being 
uh, in hell, according to this passage in Matthew 28 and others like it. And so, so being on the wrong side of God should truly be terrifying. Otherwise, we're, the Bible, I think, would argue we're delusional. Right? If you know your child is, is walking to the edge of a cliff and you just sort of go, eh, it's really not that big of a deal. It's just 400 feet. They'll be fine. You're, you're, you could argue should be dealt with. <laughs> you need medication or some counseling or maybe prison time. I don't know. You know, that's, that's pretty delusional to think gravity will not affect my three-year-old. You know? Um, it's, it's the same thing. So sometimes we need to be afraid just of the right things, not the wrong things. And in our fallen state, as, as unregenerate sinners, in raw, sinner, sinful state, the Bible actually calls us God's enemies. Several times. Romans 8, 7, it uses the, the language of enmity and hostility. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit, submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Or Colossians 1, And you who once were alienated, this is what he says about Christians in their raw I mean, uh, Christ, people before they become Christians. You were alienated and hostile in mind. James 4.4 4 says, when we fall in love with the world, that's enmity. By definition, that's enmity against God. You're in an enemy relationship with God. And so, such passages uh, are, are, are the reason why we read something in Hebrews 10.31, like it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a fearful thing. So there's not just one kind of fear in the Bible. And we have to distinguish sort of healthy fear uh, from bad fear, the kind which would militate against divine love, the kind which 1 John 4 says should be driven out by God's love, cast out. So how can we simultaneously fear God and yet not fear God? How can we simultaneously have fear in the good sense, the appropriate sense, but not be characterized by fear in the bad or inappropriate sense. And I think the answer to that is come, it comes from what 1 John, a, a kind of biblical trajectory that culminates in the, the, the concepts of 1 John 4. And that is that ultimately what God wants to do is develop the kind of relationship with us such that His love for us drives out that fear. The claim of 1 John 4.18 is that God's perfect love eradicates fear. There is no fear in love, John writes, but perfect love casts out fear. That doesn't mean that Christians, people who've accepted God's love, who've accepted the gospel message, don't any longer need to respect God or revere God, as if God has been domesticated, you know, kind of wrapped up in a box that they get to control. A lot of Christians do this in very various ways. We sometimes, you know, when the, when the Bible says in, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that uh, you know, we don't have any other gods before God, that's commandment one. It's often conflated with the second commandment, which is a separate commandment. So don't worship any other gods, number one. Number two, who remembers it? No, not... No. Graven images, right. All y'all are saying true things, it's just not in the commandment number two. Um, um, yeah, don't have any other gods before me. Ten commandment one, or commandment one. Commandment two... Don't worship the true God as a graven image. Those aren't the same thing. It means not only don't have another God, don't reduce God in all His ineffable glory. And you can't put limits or borders on Him or a time frame. He's, he's just being. He is the I Am. Don't try to put Him inside a little shape like a stone image. 
We sometimes do it with a, 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 our, our kind of little handy, um, you know, uh, summaries of the Bible or what God wants. There's, there's five of these or three of those or ten of those or seven of these, you know, right? Uh, what do you need to be, to be saved? And we, we list five things in our faith tradition, but there's actually like 27 in the New Testament. <coughs> Loving your neighbor as yourself in, in such that you would cross from Samaria to, to Judea or back and forth is actually the answer about neighbor love, that whole story, the Good Samaritan. And he says, what do I need to do to inherit salvation? That's the question. Same question as Acts 2, but the answer isn't repent and be baptized. There it's love your neighbor radically. There's a whole lot of answers to that question in the Bible, not just five. And I'm not saying we should dispense of talking about five responses to the gospel. I'm just saying some of those things are handy, but what it can do is domesticate God. You can take this being who says all kinds of things and reduce him to this little verbal shape. It's kind of propositional form of a graven image, you might say. We don't get to control God. You become a Christian, you still have to have that reverence, that fear which says, God, you are God, I'm not. Have your way with me. I mean, I want, to, I want you to read with me Revelation 1, 12 through 17, and, and ask yourself, does this sound like, and it's written to John the Apostle, who wrote, you know, who's given the, 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 the apocalypse, the revelation that, that he's to share with the seven churches of Asia. Uh, he's exiled, he's a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos out in, in the Mediterranean, and he, it's on the Lord's Day, and he gets this great vision. I want you to tell me, this is a Christian, being talked to directly by Jesus Christ, does this sound like someone who, because he's become a Christian, now has God wrapped up in a nice little package that he can control? Revelation 1, 12-17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is already weird, right? Who's talking? Seven lamps, Sam's and a dude in the middle. That's not normal. That's not the kind of thing, go, ah, I got that wrapped up. He's probably, what? But it gets worse or better, <laughs> crazier, less controllable. The hairs of his head, verse 14, were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Say what? And th these things are hard to even like picture sometimes in Revelation. In his right hand he held seven stars. That's normal. From his mouth came out a two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. Staring at him is like staring at the sun, you know, without the little eclipse glasses. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We don't get to put God in a little box of whatever kind. It may make us feel better, safer, eternally secure. It is a myth. We're making up a fiction. You ought to be afraid of that God if that's what you're doing with Him. You ought to be afraid of the real God, wh whom you've just parodied. Don't be fooled by that. There's a reason we're told not to put God in a box, a graven image. Remember, Deuteronomy says... You saw no form or similitude when you went up into the mountain. You can't put him in a form. He's still the wild and holy other, as one writer called him. So, 
Accepting God's love doesn't mean we don't have to fear God in the sense of respect and reverence for the kind of being He is. But on the other hand, neither does it mean that we're walking around in constant fear. Frozen. Scared to move. As if faithfulness and reverence means I will never ever question anything or do anything different or do anything because we might mess up. That is messing up. Check out the parable of the talents. That is, fear that, right? That is messing up. You're already abdicating faithfulness. That's not the appropriate condition for those who've accepted Jesus. And the reason lies, folks, at the heart of the gospel. And the gospel says most fundamentally that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's personally come down and paid the price for our sin. And He's freed us from the fear of facing a holy God and facing Him as enemies. So 1 John assures us of this. This is a beautiful text. 1 John 4, 9, beginning. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. He made it manifest. It's evident. It's plain. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's the evidence. I mean, what a small speck of the cosmos is planet Earth. Add up all the matter in the, the cosmos, and, and you could add up every human being who's ever lived, and you can, it, can, it barely even measures. I don't know if where is even a question that makes sense for God, actually. Where did God live? When did God live? Those are all limiting questions, but that's all we got. You know, we can only think from our heads out. But God came into our world. He entered time and space and came to this little tiny rock and came to lowly people slaves, losers, failures, beggars, arrogant people who are all those things and don't even know it, which is a whole other level. The love of God is manifest in that God sent His only Son into this world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God. It doesn't start with us getting it right first. No, He loves us and sends His Son as propitiation and then asks us for the appropriate response. By this, verse 13 says, we know that we abide in Him, we live in Him, and He lives in us because He's given us of His Spirit. He even gives us part of Himself. When you're baptized into Christ, Acts 2.38 says that the Spirit indwells you. Wow, that's amazing. Talk about intimacy. It's not just we're pretty tight. He's in me. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives or abides in Him, and He lives in God. That's some amazing stuff. And so it's no wonder that verse 16 has John saying, So, we've come to know and to believe. We believe it. We now know, and we, we're, we're in. We believe the love that God has for us. We're trusting that love. He, he's proven it. It's become manifest. He's done too many crazy things for it not to be true. We have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. And I think that's where we all are. Do we believe, love that? Do we, do, we, do, we, sorry, do we believe and know what the gospel claims? That God loves us that much. So these kinds, and look at Revelation 12. It doesn't stop here. He sees this incredible image of Jesus. You know, God with glory that's hard to explain. You explain it and it sounds like somebody's on something. You know, it's just crazy sounding. 
but it causes him to fall down as though he's dead. And look what the, look what the next verse says. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. He doesn't change his, his being. He's still the wild and holy other that we should reverence and worship and adore and fear in the, in the appropriate way. But that same being, though he's still all those things, puts his hand on John and says, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. Remember, he's been crucified, but he's the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And it's those kinds of texts, those texts of divine assurance, these promises from God, that, that leave us in such a state that we don't ever need to fear again. God has embraced us, and He initiated that. It was His idea. We were running the other way. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, Isaiah says. We had better things to do. We thought we knew what we were doing. We were too apathetic to care or listen. We were rebellious. Maybe all of the above. And the Lord laid on Him our lawlessness. He embraced us in Jesus Christ. And His goal is that His perfect love will cast fear out of our lives forever. But folks, here's what we got to do. We have to work with our Heavenly Father on this. Like we talked about this morning in this class, God is sovereign, but His sovereignty has never meant that you're a robot, that you don't have volition or will or choice. It's never meant that. And I know we can't get our brains around it. The sovereignty of God and our free choice are, at the end of the day, a mystery. You just have to look at and go, okay, the Bible affirms both, so do I. It's like the nature of Jesus being jointly divine and human. Who can, who can understand that, really? People have been chewing on that for millennia. Smart people. And you just have to look at the mystery and groove on it and go, that's, that's what it is. And wow. Pretty cool. We've got to work with Him. He invites us to work with Him. That's why John, 1 John 4, 18 says this. Whoever, he's writing to human beings, Christians, whoever fears has not been perfected in the love. So here's our marching orders. If you still, anybody in here have fear at all? I have it about every day of some sort. It doesn't look like yours, right? Um, there's a lot of things I don't think I have any fear about that you probably fear and vice versa. Um, I'm not real worried about uh, standing up in front of people and talking. It, I mean, really not much at all anymore. I, maybe the first time or two or something. Um, I mean, I, I like tweak my lesson till like 9.01. Maybe that's a form of fear. I don't know. I, 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 but so anyway, you've got things I don't have and I have things you don't have. But we all have fear. And here's what he's doing. He's inviting us to see ourselves for what we really are. If you still have fear, he says you haven't yet been perfected in love. That's not saying that you're out. It's saying I'm inviting you to not have to feel that pain anymore and to not be immobilized as churches or individual Christians or in families, to never improving, to never growing. I'm with you. I started this relationship. I've shown you how much I loved you. I've sent my son. He died. I, wrote, I raised him. And so he's encouraging us as, as his beloved children to embrace that heritage as his beloved children. First John 3, the chapter earlier, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. What does it say about being itself? The I am that I am. 
that that being would want to have you and me. I mean, I'm from nowhere. You are too. Some of you think you're from somewhere really cool. You know, you are. I mean, cooler than Bible, Arkansas. But you're to God. What's what's you know? I don't know. Tampa. What's San Francisco? What's anywhere? To God. Tampa. Tampa's the thing. It's just Tampa's cool. Um, they do have good Cuban sandwiches. I will I'll give them that. But I mean, we all you know, we all to God compared to God are nothing. We're ants. You know. What, what is the total value of the molecules that make up Monty Hampton? If you could, if you could like weigh it and measure it, what is it worth? 52 cents or nothing? I mean, honestly. But here's God looking at me and saying, that's my son. That's my boy. And I'm his Abba Father. And, and he says, beloved, we are his children now. Think about that. Romans 8, and we'll close. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, a term of great intimacy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So God is encouraging us to trust him, to perfectly trust his perfect love for us, to embrace our heritage as his beloved children. So what we're going to do, Lord willing, in the next couple of lessons, uh, you know, probably starting back up in a couple of weeks, is try to learn how to live into our true identity as God's beloved adopted children. And not let just be some idea, but to live into that, to start being like that and acting that way and feeling it in our gut. Having an identity and a security and a confidence that gives us a suit of armor against fear because of what God has done. And we're going to do that in part by putting love's number one enemy, the number one nemesis, according to 1 John 4, fear, under the magnifying glass. And we're going to try to get to know our chief opponent, our enemy, as thoroughly as possible. We're going to look at some of the manifestations of fear in a little more detail. And so I'm going to invite you to open up your, your life and your heart and, and, and to let, let the Word of God, the Spirit of God, argue with you. Don't double down on your fear because you're fearful of being pushed to grow a little bit. That's exactly what the opposite of what we're supposed to do is. So you with me? That's the plan. Thank you for your attention today. If we can help you in any way, we're going to sing this song, and we are uh, more than happy to do whatever we can to help you get closer to Jesus. Let us know what your needs are. We'll pray with you, study with you. We have a baptistry if you're ready to be baptized into Christ to start your, your walk with Him. Uh, let us know while together we all stand and sing.